John chapter 1, we discover one of the most revolutionary, consequential, and mysterious statements ever penned. A statement written about Jesus, the most important person who has ever lived. A statement made by John, who knew Jesus better, perhaps, than anyone else who ever lived. A statement that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. In fact, a statement that just alters our whole view of reality. John has already told us the Logos was in the beginning with God. And the Logos was God. And now in John 1 and verse 14, John makes a dramatic claim about the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The statement is too simple to understand and too enormous to contemplate. The incarnation becomes a commonplace only when we have an impoverished view of God. We will need more than one sermon on this text. We will need more than one lifetime. We will need the ends of eternity to exegete these 29 simple words. Let's begin with a question. What did the disciples, disciples believe was the heart of the Christian message? If we could ask second, third, and fourth generation believers about the faith that was passed down to them, what would they identify as the heart and the soul of Christianity? Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of John, the apostle who wrote this gospel. He was the third pastor at Antioch. This was Paul's sending church. Ignatius was arrested and taken to Rome where he suffered martyrdom from the wild beast. Seven of Ignatius' epistles have been passed down to us. What did Ignatius learn from John who knew Jesus better than anyone else alive? In his epistle to the Tralians, Ignatius summarizes the church's teaching. Quote, be deaf. Therefore, when anyone would speak to you apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was descended from the family of David, born of Mary, who truly was born both of God and of the Virgin, truly took a body. For the Word became flesh and dwelt among us without sin, ate and drank truly, truly suffered persecution under Pontius Pilate, was truly and not in appearance crucified and died, who was also truly raised from the dead and rose after three days, his father raising him up. Irenaeus, 
was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp, in turn, was another disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote our book. Irenaeus planted Christianity in Gaul, southern France, and he represents Christianity in its third generation. His most famous work is called Against Heresies, in which he summarizes the Christian faith that was passed down from John to Polycarp to himself. Quote, The church, though scattered through the whole world to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples the faith. And one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that in them is, and then one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became flesh for our salvation. And in the Holy Ghost, who through the prophets preached the dispensations and the advent, and the birth from the virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the bodily, the bodily assumption into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and His appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father to comprehend all things under one head and to raise up all flesh of all mankind that according to the good pleasure of the Father invisible, every knee of those that are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth should bow before Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King. Tertullian was a lawyer who converted to Christianity. He was an influential Christian leader in North Africa during the second century, the second half of the second century. And he represents for us Christianity in its fourth generation. Irenaeus was the third generation. And Tertullian uses a phrase that has become very common in theology, regula fide, or the rule of faith. The rule of faith is the measuring stick by which we assess true Christianity. Here is the rule. The rule of faith is altogether one, sole, immovable, and irreformable, namely to believe in one God Almighty, the maker of the world, and His Son, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, was made flesh in her womb, and born of her, crucified under Pontius Pilate on the third day, raised again from the dead, received in the heavens, sitting now at the right hand of the Father, coming to judge the quick and the dead, also through the resurrection of the flesh. During the period of the church councils, beginning in the fourth century, the church father who devoted his life through great opposition to define the incarnation was a man named Athanasius of Alexandria. He was from North Africa, and he was disdained by many as, quote, the black dwarf. His most famous work is entitled, On the Incarnation of the Word. Athanasius writes, God the Word, the Logos, of the all-good Father did not abandon the human race when it was falling to its ruin. By the offering of His own body, He destroyed death, which had attached itself to man. 
By his own power, he restored all that belongs to man's condition. He assumed a body for the salvation of us all and taught the world concerning the Father. He has destroyed death and freely graced us all with incorruption through the promise of the resurrection, having raised his own body as its first fruits. Well, clearly, the early church celebrated the incarnation. The fathers emphasized the virginal conception and the bodily resurrection as the twin pillars of the incarnation. In the virginal conception, God became what He made in order to redeem what He made. And in the bodily resurrection, God eternalized His incarnation. Now, until the year 313, Christianity was officially illegal in the Roman Empire. Thousands of Christian martyrs abandoned their lives, clinging to the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection. If Christ was raised from the grave, so will I. However, when Constantine came to the throne and converted to Christianity, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to being the official religion of the empire. So now what? We can't get martyred. Well, for the next three centuries, the church really devoted itself theologically to really understanding who Jesus is. And from that, they really came to discuss who the Trinity are. How does Jesus relate to God the Father? And once you've got that figured out, then we can figure out how the Holy Spirit also relates to the Father. But really, the heartbeat of theology after Constantine comes to the throne, is the Incarnation. And beginning with the Council of Nicaea in 325, through the Third Council of Constantinople in 680, the church labored to defeat false views of Christ, all of which arise through a misunderstanding of the Incarnation. The councils address several questions. For example... Was Jesus identical to God the Father or merely similar to God the Father? Did Jesus have two natures, human and divine, or one, some sort of hybrid nature? Was Jesus truly and completely human or did he merely appear human? Was Jesus two persons in one body? You look back on all that, and it's just a marvel they got that all sorted out. The Incarnation, friends, really was the heart and the soul of Christianity through the first 600 years of the church. And the Creed of Chalcedon in 451 is widely considered one of the clearest statements of the Incarnation. It reads this way, We then, following the Holy Fathers, whom I just read, all with one consent teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul, a rational soul, and body, 
consubstantial, that means of the same essence, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Friends, are you understanding then why John 1 and verse 14 is so massively important? Who is this person revealed in human flesh? Thousands of people died on crosses in the ancient world. A few people in the ancient world in the time of Christ were resurrected. Well, what makes the cross and the resurrection of Jesus so important? We all get that, right? That's the gospel. Jesus died and resurrected. But other people died on crosses, and other people were resurrected. What makes Jesus' death and resurrection so important? It's this. It's because of who it was that died and resurrected. That is essential to the gospel. And if you look at the way the Gospels are structured, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you ever noticed they spend a lot of time, a lot of time, the majority of their time actually, identifying Jesus Christ properly. In fact, the first half of Matthew, if you recall, is all about Jesus' identity. And not until you get to Matthew 16 does Jesus even tell his followers, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and be resurrected. Oh, well, you really got to get his identity correct. This is really, really critical. So what I want to do this morning to just really help us appreciate the Incarnation is to consider two backstories that are just running right into John 1 and verse 14. And I have told these stories in various ways on previous occasions. I try never to preach identical sermons, but some stories are just so massively, massively important that you do need to reiterate them. And that's especially the case, especially the case when you have new people coming in. And I really want to go back through two stories and use those two stories to help us really understand John 1 and verse 14. So let's turn first to Matthew chapter 1. I began preaching through Matthew on my first Sunday here as pastor, Matthew 1 and verse 1. So it has been a while. And let's locate now the first of two accounts of the virginal conception. After recording a genealogy that descends from Abraham to Joseph, Matthew gives us a discreet but clear account of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph had no sexual relations, but Mary was nevertheless pregnant. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, who had no reason to believe that Mary was the first virgin in history to conceive, sought to disannul the engagement. The Holy Spirit intervened in a dream, explaining to Joseph that as a virgin, Mary had conceived a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the end of verse 20 states, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now verse 25 reiterates that Joseph and Mary had no sexual relations before Jesus was born, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, And he called his name Jesus. 
Now these statements indicate that Jesus was not merely virgin born, Jesus was virginally conceived. Orthodoxy has always affirmed the supernatural character of Jesus' birth as indispensable to the gospel. Humans cannot produce a solution to their fallenness. God has to intervene. But orthodoxy, friends, has equally insisted on the natural character of Jesus' birth. God broke through a sphere of amniotic fluid the same way all of us come into the world. In modern times, theologians are often called to defend the deity of Jesus Christ, the supernatural character of His birth. But in ancient times, it might surprise you that theologians often had to defend the humanity of God. That God really did come through the womb of a woman. This is why Ignatius again and again says, truly, 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 he was human. The four Gospels demonstrate and the early church councils affirm Jesus was both divine and human, the God-man. And why is this doctrine just so critically important? Well, Gregory of Nazianzus, an early defender of the Incarnation, put it succinctly, that which Jesus Christ has not assumed, He has not healed. But that which is united to His Godhead is also saved. God assumed the whole of our humanity in order to redeem the whole person. Now, friends, Christianity was not the only narrative in the ancient world to teach an incarnational union between God and man. However, Matthew's gospel presents a radically different incarnation story than the pagan alternatives. In the time of Christ, the pagan doctrine of of apotheosis, apotheosis had really gained popularity throughout the Roman Empire. According to apotheosis, men can be deified as gods. The Egyptians deified their pharaohs as early as 2500 B.C. The Greeks began deifying their rulers in the 4th century B.C. And the Romans adopted the practice of deifying their rulers just before Jesus was born. Julius Caesar was officially deified by the Roman Senate in the year 42 B.C. Julius Caesar was a great conqueror, but of course he was not an emperor, but he was deified as a god. Octavius, whom we also know as Augustus, the first Roman emperor, was also deified Octavius was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was a god. Consequently, Octavius literally became known as the son of God. So friends, do you really appreciate the irony? 
Jesus, the Son of God, is born under the rule of Octavius, the Son of God. The Romans believed the Son of God actually walked across the earth. But to find Him, you had to journey to the great Roman Empire, to the great Roman capital of Rome. You had to go along those great roads. You had to pass all those ranks of soldiers. You had to go find the man on the throne and arrayed in purple and hope to get an audience. The emperor was God incarnate. So how do you respond to the critic who claims the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth is just one more classical myth of men becoming gods? That is an accusation out there of Christianity. Well, the problem is those claims are off by 180 degrees. Matthew structures his gospel against his pagan backstory so you don't misunderstand what's at stake with the virgin birth. Apotheosis advanced men, mortal men, into divine status. But the moment the Romans began elevating their emperors as gods, God humbled himself and became a man. That's the difference. You will not find God sitting on a throne in Rome, arrayed in purple, surrounded by an army. You will find Him in a feeding trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and surrounded by the stench of animals. Early emperors pronounced their deity, and the emperor of heaven pronounced His humanity. The Word became flesh. Matthew's Gospel is actually defiant It's treason. It is a manifesto of a king who was raised in the shadows of the Roman Empire. And Matthew decrees to the Roman emperor, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now go make disciples in his name. Every other king in all human history comes to reign and then to die. Jesus comes to die and then reign. Matthew's gospel also confronts us with the grim circumstances that were inaugurated by the birth of Jesus. Herod, if you recall, massacred Bethlehem's infants in order to assassinate the true king. Mary and Joseph fled across an international boundary like Syrian refugees fleeing a sadistic warlord. Matthew's Christmas story, as I have related it previously, is dark and tragic. It's not the kind of scene you would paint onto a Hallmark gift card, a Christmas card. Matthew's genealogy prepares us for the ugly realities of the world that Jesus entered. Like Octavius, adopted by Julius Caesar, Jesus also was adopted by his human father, Joseph But friends, Joseph was no God. Joseph descended from a long line of notorious sinners. And you go back and you read through that list of genealogy and look at all those people. There's some really wicked people. Jewish culture, for instance, venerated four women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But curiously, Matthew's genealogy highlights four alternatives. In verse 3, Tamar, the prostitute 
who was impregnated by her lying, conniving father-in-law. It's a disgusting story. In verse 5, Rahab, another prostitute. In verse 5, Ruth, who certainly was a nobler woman, but she was a Gentile and a foreigner. And in verse 6, Bathsheba. And Matthew does not so much as even name her. Instead, he emphasizes her adultery with King David by calling her by her former husband's name, Uriah. That, too, is a disgusting story. Those are Joseph's ancestors and Jesus' ancestors. And I wonder, do you ever feel just, just scandalized and disgusted by the prominent role of adulterers and even prostitutes in political discourse today? Would you be scandalized if Matthew traced the genealogy of Jesus through an adulterous president or the wombs of Protestant, uh, prominent prostitutes? Friends, that's actually Matthew's point. That's what he's saying to us. And look at verse 21. God took the name Jesus to save his people from their sins. This is the incarnation story. Now with that account in place, let's turn back to John's gospel. And let's pick up a second backstory to the incarnation. John's gospel has already identified Jesus, the Logos, in radical equality with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we know who the Word is. Come again now to this magnificent statement in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And look at these next words. And we have seen His glory. The glory of God in a flesh and blood human body. Look also at the word dwelt. You may want to underline that word. In Greek, it's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And that term connects us to a lengthy backstory of a tabernacle and a temple running through the entire Old Testament. And I want to consider that story, but first of all, go forward one chapter. John tells us of one of two cleansings of the temple. This one occurred early in Jesus' ministry. And the enraged Jews demand of Jesus a sign, signifying that he could justly cleanse the temple. And Jesus answered cryptically in chapter 2 and verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And notice the Jews' response. This is chapter 2, verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's a long time. And will you raise it up in three days and keep reading? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Here is an absolutely critical point. Jesus deliberately associates a temple with his body. 
And John already told us that Jesus tabernacled in human flesh. So what's the relationship then between the tabernacle and the temple and the body of Jesus? Well, let's just think our way all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Don't turn there, but let's think our way back. In Eden, man lived in the presence of God. The presence of God in Scripture is so closely associated with, if not synonymous with, the term glory that they're often used interchangeably. God's glory and God's presence used interchangeably. So God's presence is there in the beginning. But of course, man fell in the garden. And God withdraws His presence. Now God is, of course, omnipresent, but He cannot abide human sin. God withdraws, and the earth is plunged into a deep, dark curse. And did you know that Genesis never refers to the glory of God? It's gone. It's not there. God and man cannot occupy the same space. But suddenly in Exodus, God's glory appears. God redeems His people from slavery in Egypt. He sends plagues upon their captors. He splits apart the sea of water. He feeds them in the wilderness. And in Exodus 16, we discover for the first time the word glory associated with God's presence. And Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, in the morning you shall see, get this, the glory of Yahweh. You're going to see the glory that no one in Genesis saw. And sure enough, the next morning they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And that glory-filled cloud guided them through the wilderness And these references to God's glorious presence just continue. In Exodus 24, we read of the glory of Yahweh dwelling on Mount Sinai. God has returned to live among His people. However, the relationship between God and man is extraordinarily complicated. Exodus tells the people constantly sinning and God constantly threatening and don't come near God. God actually enacted a death penalty for anyone who just touched the foot of Mount Sinai. Then again, God gave the people a pattern for building a sanctuary, a tabernacle, because God intended to tabernacle among His people right in the center of the camp. It's rather complicated. And the complication becomes evident at the end of Exodus chapter 40, where we read of the tabernacle finally being completed. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. God's glory goes in and Moses goes out. God and man cannot occupy the same space. Only a single priest on a single day of the year after elaborate preparation could pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies and cast blood upon the mercy seat of the ark. 
that veil simultaneously excluded access and periodically permitted access through much complication. And that ark behind that veil was lethal. In 2 Samuel 6, when Uzzah touched the ark as it lurched on an ox cart, he collapsed dead in a moment. Now fast forward five centuries. In 1 Kings 7, we have a record of the completion of the temple. The account sounds very similar to Exodus 40. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Same cloud, same glory, same problem. The glory of Yahweh goes in and the priests go out. God and man cannot occupy the same space. You can't get them together. And listen to how Solomon responds. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. God just shrouds his glory away in mysterious gloom behind the veil. He is isolated and distant from his fallen creation, even while he attempts to tabernacle among them. It's really complicated. And all too soon, Israel forsakes Solomon's temple for idols. And 400 years later, the Babylonians come and they destroy the temple. And after 70 years, the returning exiles rebuild the temple, but curiously, we never read of God's glorious presence like a cloud returning to fill that post-exilic temple. The cloud never comes back. The glory never returns. In fact, Ezekiel has a great vision of Yahweh's glory just picking up and leaving the temple. And Malachi predicts that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple But that implies, with the closing of the Old Testament canon, the Lord whom you seek has not returned to His temple. Now, come to the world of Jesus. In the first century B.C., Herod the Great undertakes a massive renovation program of the temple. Josephus tells us he begins with 10,000 workers, and eventually that number swells to 14,000 workers. Herod began by erecting a massive stone platform which stretches across 37 acres. That is double the base area of the Great Pyramid. It's 24 football fields wide and long. The platform alone took some eight eight years to complete. It rests on stones that are ten times larger than the largest stones in the Great Pyramid. And on top of that platform, Herod erected a beautiful new temple that was three times taller than Solomon's. It was the largest temple complex in the whole Roman Empire so far as we know. Josephus tells us that there was a pillared colonnade which wrapped its way all around that temple. He said those columns were so wide that it would take three men to get their arms around. The temple itself, says Josephus, was covered all over with plates of gold of very great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor And Josephus says the inward parts were fastened with iron, which preserved the joints immovable for all future generations. 
This thing is never going to be destroyed. And Everett Ferguson writes, the temple services were considered to unite with angelic worship and invocation of the Lord on behalf of Israel and the world. The world is united to God in the temple. The Jews interpreted the temple as a symbol of the cosmos. They understood it as holding the whole cosmos together. So do you understand now why the Jews take such offense at Jesus' dismissive remark? Well, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. No big deal, right? For 46 years, they had labored on this structure to unite God and man for as long as the world endures. And when the temple is complete, the Jews believe that the glorious presence of God, of Yahweh, would at long last return to His temple. Just as Malachi predicted, Yahweh will come and He will instigate a new Passover, a new Exodus, a new Passover. And that's where we are in John chapter 2. Fast forward now three years, the nation converges again on Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus comes with a throng of Galileans up the mountain pass from Jericho. And they are looking there for that fiery golden temple on the horizon. And Jesus deliberately arranges a donkey ride up to the city gate to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy of a coming king. And he comes from the east the same way Zechariah envisioned Yahweh coming to his temple. And then Jesus suddenly comes to his temple. Or does he? It's really complicated. Jesus cleanses the temple a second time. This is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And then Jesus turns abruptly. And he sweeps down the steps of the Temple Mount, never to ascend the temple again. And under the shadow of that temple, his perplexed disciples began pointing out all the wonderful buildings of the temple. Look at those magnificent buildings. And Jesus, having now ascended the Mount of Olives, responds abruptly and dismissively. Truly I say to you, there, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down to the earth. It's all coming down. And Herod's temple was finally completed, get this, in 63 A.D. 63 A.D., long after Jesus died and resurrected, having taken some 86 years to complete and seven years later, it was gone. Every last stone. Within 40 years, just as Jesus predicted, it's gone. So when was Malachi fulfilled? When does the Lord come suddenly to His temple? Three days after predicting the temple's complete destruction, Jesus was dead. And at the moment of his death, that temple veil just split apart from top right down to the bottom, exposing a dreadful, dark secret at the heart of Jerusalem.
the Holy of Holies was empty. Josephus tells us the ark was never returned after the exile in Babylon. First Maccabees tells us that Judas Maccabeus restored the temple after its pollution by Antiochus IV. He tells us he restored the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table, the table and the holy vessels, but no ark. When the Roman emperor, our general uh, Pompey, invaded Jerusalem in 63 B.C. and entered into that temple, into the holy place, he found it was empty. Nothing inside. At the moment of Christ's death, that hollow stone chamber just revealed, friends, that God and man are not reunited. They're not. How could they be? We just killed God. Jesus' death was followed by him being sealed in the stone chamber outside the temple. Yahweh had not returned to his temple after all. We have no access to God, only an empty room. And that's because God and man cannot occupy the same space. It's not possible. Right? Wrong. Look again at John 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. God did indeed come suddenly to his temple and he raised it from the grave. God and man can indeed occupy the same space and it's not complicated at all. God never intended to dwell forever in a temple made of stone. That's complicated. The temple, the tabernacle... God goes in, Moses goes out. That's all very complicated. No, God's presence returns suddenly to a human body and raises it from the grave. Now turn back to John 1 and verse 14. Are you really, truly beginning to understand these words? And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And look at what we have seen. We have seen His glory. The unapproachable glory of the cloud filled the temple and the priests go out. The unapproachable glory of God filled the ark. Touch it and die. The unapproachable glory of God set Mount Sinai rumbling with smoke and fire. Touch the hem of Mount Sinai and die. Touch the hem of His garment and live. Because the unapproachable glory of God has become approachable. It tabernacles among us. And we have seen His glory where once there was a veil. Touch the ark and die. Thomas, touch my hands. Touch my side and believe. Shall we pray? Our Father, we're so grateful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to take away all the complication of our sin and to atone for it on Calvary and to resurrect in his body. We pray, Lord, that today may be a day of rejoicing for someone here 
who was hesitant about embracing Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.